Open your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. We've been studying the Beatitudes, and I thought it would be helpful for us to get a sense of the whole before we move on. We looked at them individually, but to sort of back up and and get a sense of the whole. In Matthew chapter 4, after his trials in the wilderness, Jesus began his earthly ministry. And in verse 17 of chapter 4, we read, From that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And then in verse 23, Jesus went through Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, healing every disease and sickness among the people. And the common thread that runs through all of this is speaking of the kingdom of heaven. So when we come to the Sermon on the Mount, we expect, or we should, that it has to do with the kingdom of heaven. And as if to reinforce this, the first and the last Beatitudes, the first and the eighth, the blessing is, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But what exactly is the kingdom of heaven that Jesus is speaking about in the Sermon on the Mount? Simply put, the kingdom of heaven is a description of what human life and human community look like. That's what he describes in this sermon in the kingdom of heaven. This is what Jesus is speaking about. This is what the kingdom of heaven is supposed to look like. What are the citizens of the kingdom of heaven supposed to look like? Well, in a word, they are to be different. John Stott, in his book on the Sermon on the Mount, sees the key text in this sermon as being found in chapter 6, verse 8, in which Jesus says, Do not be like them. Is reminiscent of what God told Israel in Leviticus, I am the Lord your God. You must not do as they do in Egypt, where you used to live, and you must not do as they do in the land of Canaan, where I am bringing you. And in the Sermon on the Mount, we hear the same call, a call to be different. In the Beatitudes, our character is to be different. One might say completely distinct. This, I think, is the underlying theme of the Sermon on the Mount, and everything else is sort of a variation on this theme, that we are to be different. We are told we are the light of the world. The world is darkness. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, so you need to be different. You have heard it said, but I tell you, we hear this six times in this sermon, which Jesus says, this is what people say, but I'm telling you this. When praying, do not be like the hypocrites. Do not keep on babbling like pagans. We are to be different. This is why I think, as we've gone through the Beatitudes, they may in fact have seemed so foreign and so strange, so different. How are we supposed to be different? If we're citizens of the kingdom of heaven and we're supposed to be different, how are we supposed to be different? Well, in the Beatitudes, we see that our character is to be different. In the rest of chapter 5, our ethics are supposed to be different. In chapter 6, our piety and our ambition. In chapter 7, in our relationships and in our commitments. With regard to character, which we've looked at in the Beatitudes, Jesus speaks about both those things that are private, interior, if you wish, and those things that are public in the arena of our, our conduct with other people. The question that a lot of people have argued with regard to the Sermon on the Mount is this. 
Can one obey the Sermon on the Mount? Can we keep the things that Jesus has called us to do? Well, there are two extreme positions. One position is that the Sermon on the Mount presents uh, ethical standards that are obvious. That in fact, if you look at any world religion, they would have something very, very similar. It's easy to follow. Just follow these guidelines and you'll be living the life you should. I would argue that people who take this position don't understand the Sermon on the Mount at all in the same way that they don't understand the Ten Commandments. That's one extreme. Everyone can do it. The other extreme is that nobody can do it, that no one can keep what Jesus calls us to obey. They're very noble, but really quite impractical. They are attractive to imagine, oh, it would be nice if I could be like that, but in fact, impossible to fulfill. I think the truth actually lies in between these two extremes. The standards of the Sermon on the Mount are neither attainable by any one person, but neither are they totally unattainable by any person. I think if Jesus put them out of our reach, it would ignore the purpose of Jesus' preaching. Jesus like, here, let me tell you guys how you're supposed to do None of you can do it, but let me just tell you anyway. On the other hand, if we say anyone can do it, then we ignore the reality of sin. And why did Jesus come into the world if, in fact, we can all do these wonderful things on our own? What is essential is that we become new people, that we are born again. And if we have this new life, what does that look like? Well, what we find in the Sermon on the Mount is a comprehensive portrait of what a Christian is supposed to look like. What Jesus speaks of here is not about a distinct or separate group of disciples, sort of super disciples, if you wish, uh, who really have it and, and they can do all these things. And neither is it that uh, in the age of specialization, we have some that are merciful, we have some that are meek, we have some that are persecuted. Um, no. Um, Jesus is calling on all of us as his people to have these qualities. It is a description of what every Christian should be. The Sermon on the Mount has, in fact, been described as a new law. If you remember, the Ten Commandments came from Mount Sinai, and now we have a Sermon on the Mount. So Moses gives uh, the Ten Commandments and the law, and we have Jesus here now giving us the Sermon on the Mount. Both have similar purposes, or the law at least, shows us that non, a non-Christian cannot please God on his own. And then a person must turn to God for salvation. But it also shows those who are God's people, this is how you're supposed to live. This is how God's people are supposed to act. The reality is there is a tension between the real and the ideal, who I really am and who I'm called to be. Well, the first step in this journey, as we've seen, stressed over and over again, is the first beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit. We are to actively acknowledge that we are utterly in, unable to do anything on our own, that we are utterly dependent upon God. Well, this is contrary to the world, which tells us that we are to be self-reliant, we are to be independent, and we are to be rich, or we're to try to be rich in any sense possible. So why does Jesus start off on such a downer? I mean, why does he say, blessed are the poor? Well, the reality is, we are poor. 
The reality is we are always in need of God's grace. And the reality is we cannot receive God's grace if our hands are full of other stuff. Stuff that is fluff, that has no real, real substance. We must empty our hands, acknowledge that we are poor, and then God can pour out his grace upon us. This is the beginning point of the Sermon on the Mount. And this is where I think our failures begin. We look to ourselves or we look to others. Plans, schemes, ideas, abilities, powers. We think that we can do it on our own. And this isn't simply something that we would say is secular or worldly. You know, people out there, they think they can do it on their own. It is, in fact, the real danger in the church. And it has been since the church was founded. Do you remember the church in Laodicea, the seventh of the seven churches? What did the Lord say to that church? I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. This is a passage I think has been misunderstood for centuries in that we think that that the Lord Jesus is saying, you know, you're either on fire for me or you're kind of backslidden and, and not doing what you should do. And I wish you were one or the other, but instead you're sort of, you're not really on fire, but you're not really backsliding either. That's not what is being said at all. Laodicea was one of three towns in a particular vicinity, in, in a valley in Turkey. One of them, we know from Paul's letter to the Colossians, was Colossae. And this was a place that was famous for its cold water. That is, water would come down the mountains, the icy water would come down, and it was something that would refresh. The other end of the valley was Hierapolis, which had hot mineral springs, which were therapeutic. If you had uh, arthritis or you were know, aching, you would go there in order to be not healed, but to be uh, rejuvenated. So Colossae, cold water to refresh. Hierapolis, a place where you can be rejuvenated, in between is Laodicea. It has neither cold water, literally it did not, nor hot springs. What it had was a river that ran through it that really stunk. What they had was lukewarm water. And ironically, this was the nature of the church then. It had nothing to offer. It could not refresh. It could not heal. It was just there. As the church was marked by this, and as I've read to you before in this series, you say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. The church in Laodicea didn't recognize its true state. And the result is, if you keep reading in Revelation 3, behold, I stand at the door and knock. Again, a passage that's been misunderstood. Jesus is not speaking to unbelievers that he wants to come into their heart. He's outside the church, wanting to get into the church. The church feels like, we got it covered. We are self-sufficient. We don't need any help. And Jesus is actually put outside the church, and he's knocking, trying to let the church let him back in. And if we do not recognize that we are poor in spirit, then in reality, we have locked Jesus outside the door. We are like the people in the church of Laodicea. We need to begin with acknowledging our poverty. 
And one of the things I think we should recognize also about the Beatitudes is that when you put them all together, they present not only a portrait of God's people, but a portrait of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Was Jesus poor? We begin with poverty, not of spirit, but in terms of emptying himself and relying on his Father. In 2 Corinthians, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. How, did Jesus, how was he rich and what did he get rid of? His ability, his self-sufficiency. He's the second member of the Trinity. And yet he empties himself of that and depends completely upon his heavenly Father. As Paul wrote to the Philippians, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Empty hands. And as Jesus goes through his earthly ministry, it is because of the Father through the Spirit empowering him, giving him the words to say that he is able to do the things that he does. The picture of one who is poor is one that Matthew paints in his gospel, beginning with a genealogy filled with unsavory characters, to a helpless baby who has to be taken to Egypt for his safety, who grows up in Nazareth. Nobody grows up in Nazareth. And then after his temptations that the angels have to come and attend to him. Yes, Jesus was poor. Did Jesus mourn? Yes, he did over, this, over sin and its effects in the lives of people. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. You who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together, but you were not willing. Was Jesus meek? A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and humble in heart. Did Jesus hunger and thirst after righteousness? Do you remember the story of the woman at the well? The disciples go into town to get food and Jesus speaks to her and when they come back, he says, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. My food, Jesus said, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Was Jesus merciful? The blind called out to him, have mercy on us, son of David, and he healed them. Was he pure in heart? He was without sin, we are told again and again. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who was tempted in every way just as we are, yet was without sin. As Peter tells us, he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. Was he a peacemaker? He made peace between God and man. Was he persecuted? Yes, he was, even to death. In the Beatitudes, we find the Lord Jesus set forth as the character, the exemplar, the template. This is what a citizen of the kingdom of heaven is supposed to look like. In what follows, in verses 13 through 16, Jesus sets the function of his disciples. We know what our character is supposed to be, okay? We're citizens of the kingdom, great. What are we supposed to do? What is our function? Well, we find this in verses 13 through 16, and follow along if you would as I read. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? You are no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. 
a city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. One might well ask, what possible influence could those listening to Jesus that first time he gave the Sermon on the Mount have in the real world? And the people that Jesus describes as citizens of the kingdom in the Beatitudes, how can they have any influence? They are poor, they mourn, they are meek, they're merciful, they're peacemakers, they're persecuted. I mean, will they not simply be wiped out? Won't they just be washed away by the realities of a cold, cruel world? I mean, listen, in the real world, you can't be poor. You can't mourn or be meek or be merciful. You'll get, you'll, you'll be trampled underfoot. You just cannot survive. Those who are pure in heart are seen as too feeble to accomplish anything. The world doesn't like those who are pure in heart. But let's stop and think a minute. To whom is Jesus speaking when he gave this Sermon on the Mount? Who was his audience? As best we can tell is a group of Jewish peasants in the northern part of Israel in Galilee. They were not particularly observant Jews. They were not financially secure people. They did not have any political power. The Romans ruled the world and whatever power the Jews had was in Jerusalem, in Judea, not in Galilee in the north. The temple was in Jerusalem and the Sanhedrin met there. So these are people without power. And yet in their lifetime, some of them would participate in turning the world upside down, in preaching the gospel of the kingdom at home and in other countries, even to the ends of the earth. It's amazing that all these centuries later, we are still puzzled at how this happened. How could this happen? How could the gospel, which began with the man from Nazareth, again, no one comes from Nazareth, preaching to peasants, and yet within decades, the world has changed. I think if we could go back in time and even videotape this, we would be impressed with Jesus. I don't think we would be impressed at all by his audience. And in fact, many today are still unimpressed. They divide the Jesus movement into two groups, the pre-Easter people, that is the Galileans, and then you know after Jesus was crucified, they sort of faded away. And then you have the post-Easter people in Jerusalem. So the people up north, they weren't that significant. It's the people down in Jerusalem who really were significant. And then some would add a third group. No, no, it's actually the Pauline community. You know, Paul sort of reinvented Jesus and changed the message and was a dynamic person. And then the message spread all over the face of the earth. It is inconceivable to most and perhaps even to us that this movement could have changed the world, that it could come from such humble beginnings. In the same way, we might wonder, what influence can I have? What difference can I make? And here in a small congregation, what difference can we make? I would argue that the influence ultimately is God's work through us. In our passage today, Jesus uses two metaphors to describe the influence of his disciples, his followers. 
salt and light. Very common, indispensable provisions. Pliny, the first century uh, Roman historian, said that uh, there's nothing more useful than salt and sunshine. And in Latin, it's uh, sale et sole. Sort of a, a play on words there. You need salt, you need sunshine. The need for light, I think, is more obvious. Um, salt, perhaps less so, because it has a variety of uses. But it is these two indispensable provisions that Jesus uses to describe the influence, the function of his disciples. You will notice, and by the way, this is preparation, the Lord willing, we will continue this next week. But you will notice that Jesus does not command his disciples, be salt, be light. He makes two statements. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Just as in the Beatitudes, he said, blessed are the poor in spirit. One writer has contrasted the Christian ethic, become what you are, with other ethics that I think really call to us, and that is become what you should be. And oftentimes, I think when we read scripture, when we hear people preaching or giving Bible studies, the lesson oftentimes is you need to become what you should. You should become. And no, what we find in the Sermon on the Mount is this is what you are. Okay? This is what you are. Become what you already are. It's a gift from God. God in his grace has called us to be his people. And it is his gift from beginning to end. And not just at the end where, oh, blessed are the poor in spirit. Oh, you finally learned how to be poor, so now God will bless you. No, you are poor, and God will deal with your life in grace. Some general observations that will set the stage, the Lord willing, for the next time that we meet. Number one, Christians are seen as fundamentally different from the world. Jesus speaks of two distinct communities. On the one hand, you have the earth, you have the world, and on the other, you have salt and light. The two communities are related, as we'll see in a moment, but the relationship is based on their distinctiveness. They are quite different from each other. We shouldn't be surprised at this, but I don't think we like it. We do not want to be different. Um, we don't want to be marked as different. We don't want to be seen as unique, unless it's unique in a great way. And we want to belong. We don't like the idea that somehow we are separate, that here we are, we are salt and we are light, and over here is the world, the earth, and, and somehow there's a gap between us. What makes us different? What sets us apart? It is the grace of God. God has given us this gift of grace and has called us to be his people. And apart from his grace, none of the Beatitudes can be true of us. We cannot keep the Beatitudes on our own, and we're not supposed to. It is an acknowledgement of God's grace. Now that we come to verses 13 to 16, we need to acknowledge that apart from God's grace, we cannot be salt, we cannot be light. After all, what makes us salt? What makes us light? How do we get our saltiness, if you wish, or our light? Is there anything that makes us salt and light? 
Well, these qualities are given to us. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. If we are the followers of Jesus, we have the light of life. Jesus is the light, we reflect that light. He gives us light and he gives us saltiness. It is this grace that is to mark the Christian community. And it is this that makes us fundamentally different from the world. Salt and what it salts are different in essence. If you put salt on something, that something you put it on is different than salt. You wouldn't put salt on salt. Okay? You put salt on something that is different. In the same way, light and what it enlightens are fundamentally different. You have darkness here, you turn on the light so that you have light. There is a difference. So the first thing is that Christians are fundamentally different from the world, from the earth. Secondly, and this is one of those moments in which, when, in which I wish I could say everything at, in, in one breath, but tied to the first one, Christians are not only different from the world, but we are always, underline always, to be in contact with the world. Jesus tells his listeners, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. In order for salt to have effect, it must in fact come in contact with the thing that it salts, that it is to affect. And the light can have no effect if it is hidden. So the call of Jesus is not to be separate from the world. We are different. We are distinct. But we are to be in contact with the world. Jesus, when he prayed in John 17, said, My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. We are distinct, but we are not to say, well, I, 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 can't, I can't hang out with you guys because I'm different. How can we be salt and light if we are not in contact with the world? Remember the accusation that was made against Jesus. Here's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Jesus hung out with sinners, and I would argue that there is no place in the call of Jesus for retreat or isolation from the world, as tempting as it might be. In the time of Jesus, there was, uh, in the Dead Sea area, uh, a group of Jews known as the Essenes. Uh, they were a monastic movement, all men, uh, single men. The Dead Sea Scrolls, by the way, come from this community. They lived in isolation from the rest of Israel because they believed that they were unclean and they wanted to be clean and separate from them. They called themselves, interesting, the sons of light. And yet there they were off in the desert, separate from society. Some have suggested that Jesus, in fact, is speaking in contrast to these scenes, lights that are hidden in the desert. We are fundamentally different from the world, but we are always to be in contact with the world. We are to be in the world, but not of the world. Otherwise, what impact can we have on the world? The third observation is that the world is presented as a place without light. It is a spiritually and morally dark system. It is alienated from God who is light, and since God is light and they run away from him, then they are in darkness. They are in desperate need of light. And we hear this time and time again in scripture, the darkness of the world. Listen, from Romans 1, 
For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. They're in darkness. John 1.5, the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. Ephesians 4, they are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. In Colossians 1, for he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves. Again, back to Ephesians. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. We find that the world is described as being in darkness in terms of its thinking, in terms of its understanding, in a word, in terms of its heart. We were once a part of that system until God rescued us and brought us into light, and now we are light. We are to reflect his light. The fourth and final observation is that the Christian community exists or is to exist for the good of others. What we are, as seen in the Beatitudes, our character, is for the world. It isn't for us. It isn't so we can pat ourselves on the back or say, look at what we have achieved. We are here for others. Salt and light have one thing in common, and that is they give of themselves. They expend themselves for the benefit of others. This is the opposite, by the way, these metaphors are the opposite of self-centered religion in which we think about ourselves and I want to be better and I want to do this and it's all about me, me, me and then we, f we forget that we are the children of God. He has called us, he has graciously filled us and we are here not for ourselves but for the benefit of others. Why are we different? Because of the grace of God. And why did God show us grace? Is it for us? No, it is so that we in turn might be like him as revealed in Jesus and that we might be salt and light to the world. But what does this mean to be salt, to be light? The Lord willing, we will look at this next Sunday. Let's pray together. Father, it is really quite remarkable that you have sent your Son, you've given us your Spirit, you've given us your Word, and yet we have this irresistible desire, it seems, to reinterpret, to twist things, to make ourselves the center of all things. We so easily forget that you graciously called us to be your people. You have made us salt and light, and it isn't for our benefit, but for the benefit of the world. Far too often we are tempted to withdraw from the world, and we certainly see this among your people from time to time. But we are to be salt and light. We are to be in contact with those around us. Far too often, we do not rest in your grace, but in our own efforts, at which we fail time and time again. Because we have forgotten that we are poor, 
and that we are always in need of your grace and your strength. Help us to think on these things and by your spirit meditate on them. And then by your grace bring us back together next Sunday as we continue our study. We do pray for Gwen and her baby this last week that you would watch over them and give her strength. Thank you for bringing us together. Thank you for calling us out to worship you. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.